0: Hey, Rarecast listeners. This year, Global Genes is bringing together its Rare Health Equity Forum and Rare Advocacy Summit for the Week in Rare, which will also include its Rare Champions of Hope Awards ceremony and annual membership meetings for the Global Advocacy Alliance and Rare Corporate Alliance. This is a unique opportunity to gather and engage with rare disease advocates and leaders in the same space for conversations. Join us September 18th to 21st in San Diego, California for the Global Genes Week in Rare. For more information, go to www.globalgenes.org and click on Events under the Connect tab. Hope to see you there. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In June, the National Institutes of Health's National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke made a five-year, $22.8 million grant to a group led by the Jackson Laboratory to develop gene-editing therapies for four rare neurological conditions. The use of a platform approach to develop therapies for multiple indications follows other efforts ongoing at the National Institutes of Health in the area of gene therapies, we spoke to Steve Murray, associate professor at the Jackson Laboratory, about the promise of gene editing, the work being done under the grant, and why it could have broad implications for treating rare genetic neurological conditions. Steve, thanks for joining us.
1: Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about our project that's just kicked off.
0: We're going to talk about rare neurological diseases, gene editing, and a recent five-year $22.8 million grant from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke to fund work that the Jackson Lab is leading to develop gene editing therapies for four neurologic conditions. Perhaps we can start with gene editing. What makes this a promising approach for treating genetic neurologic conditions?
1: Yeah. So, so there's numerous things that I think uh, uh, why the community and why um, society in general is very excited about the potential gene editing as a therapeutic approach. Um, I think, you know, they really at the most fundamental level. What makes it um, promising is the fact that it, it targets the underlying genetic cause of these rare diseases. So A lot of our therapies currently are treating symptoms. Uh, Some of the more advanced gene therapies we have today can replace the missing gene. Uh, All of them, however, don't address the underlying fundamental reason why those those mutations cause disease. So I think where where gene editing comes in is it actually has the potential to change the genome in, in a way that fixes that underlying cause. The other advantages are in some cases and particularly the approach that w- which I'll tell you about more that we're taking is it has the promise to be more precise than a lot of the other approaches that have been used gene therapy is a as a strategy has been incredibly successful one of the advantages of gene editing is that we can we can make the exact change that we desire in the genome when you overexpress or you replace a gene uh, product using gene therapy there there are some potential downsides of of Overexpressing that gene in a way that's not necessarily uh, identical to the physiological condition, normal physiological conditions, and then I think perhaps the the biggest potential benefit is is the nature of the um, that a, that a change to the genome is is permanent. It's a single shot and it's durable. So it has the promise to, to deliver all of these things that a one t- in in theory, you know, a one time treatment could be a permanent cure for a patient. And I think that's the, that's the important promise of the approach.
0: This is a a technology that's rapidly developing. How good a therapeutic tool is it today?
1: Right, right. So it's, it's brand new as a therapeutic tool. I don't believe there are any approved therapies at this point. Uh, I think probably saw the recent news that CRISPR therapeutics is moving. It's, uh, I think it's lead, uh, sickle cell treatment into the clinic, and that would be an ex vivo approach just to, for a little, to back up a little bit. The ex vivo approaches seem to be moving a little bit more rapid. This is that we take cells from a person, modify those cells and deliver them back to the person. And this is similar to approaches that have been used for, for example, CAR-T therapies for cancer. Uh, so this is obviously a place where there's been a lot of interest because we have that technology in place and that platform in place. However, in vivo, direct somatic gene therapy or uh, gene editing therapies, those are newer. Uh, there are a number of really promising uh, clinical trials ongoing right now. So, for example, uh, Intelia Therapeutics has um, made some really amazing progress in collaboration with uh, Regeneron on transthyretin amyloidosis. Uh, they also have a, a new, some really new promising uh, clinical data on uh, hereditary angioedema. So the, the, things are moving fast, um, uh, and a lot of these first-generation uh, therapeutics are, are uh, base, using the basic nuclease activity of, uh, of gene editing uh, platforms that basically knock out a gene, for instance, or knock out, or, or regulate a target. Uh, but I think that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, the technology and, and how it could be used for therapeutics.
0: What are the biggest challenges today to its therapeutic application and what obstacles need to be overcome, particularly if you're targeting cells in the brain?
1: Yeah, that's, it is, I, I, at least in my estimation, um, probably one of the is the biggest challenge. So I've been involved in a, uh, a delivery, I mean. I've been involved in a consortium for the last five years known as the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium. This is a common fund and NIH supported program that seeks to advance uh, gene, gene editing as a potential therapeutic platform, but is really focused on you know, uh, uh, providing support to build the fundamentals. That is, the technology, advance the technology in a way that allows the, those who are going to translate it to, to do better and And really, one of the major emphases in that in that consortium was delivery. So getting the gene editing cargo to the cell of interest, doing so in a manner that is efficient uh, and also at the same time, is is reasonably well targeted is the major uh, challenge thus far. It's not any um, it's not a coincidence that some of the most promising uh, therapeutic approaches thus far, have been ones for which our delivery technology has matured. So, for example, ex vivo, we take the cells out. We know how to manipulate those cells. Or, in the case of Intellia's lead uh, uh, products, they're both targeting the liver. So, we're very good at delivering uh, lipid nanoparticles, for instance, to the liver, um, and that's because that's just the nature of the uh, lipid nanoparticles: is they they migrate to the liver almost naturally. So, I think. Um, but however, moving from that to targeting other cells of interest is, is a, of great interest in the field, I think is the biggest challenge right now. Um, the other one is, is really understanding what we need to do in terms of uh, ensuring both uh, and, and documenting and demonstrating safety and, and efficacy. I honestly believe gene editing is an incredibly safe approach, but it's new. And so, uh, regulatory agencies are, are understandably quite cautious in this. And so, generating the data that is necessary to prove to 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 the FDA, for instance, and the rest of the world that this is this is not um, science fiction, this is really a safe and effective approach, is is um, probably and, and getting sort of some momentum in that in that area is something that needs to uh, we need to continue to work on.
0: And and just to stand the issue of delivery, um, is there any expectation whether this would be given through an infusion or would you have to infuse it directly into the brain or mm-hmm. deliver it intrathecally? Yep. I think all of those are being explored. So I, I think
1: my general sense is that the technology for a standard sort of IV infusion to get to get um uh uh Editing cargo into the into the brain is still is is several steps away. Although there are some promising technologies, for example, using focused ultrasound as a way to open the blood-brain barrier. Uh, uh, that was one of our colleagues in the um, consortium that we worked with. There are some areas that people are working on in that space. I would I would if I were to uh, speculate and project, I think interthecal or directed intracranial injections, et cetera, Uh, would be at least the first step in in the process of delivering directly to the brain. That's what we're using in our project. Um, And uh, the other major challenges around delivery is exactly the mode of delivery. So what we've proposed in our project, and maybe we'll go into this in a little bit, but um, is to use a viral vector delivery. And that's because viral vectors have been proven safe and effective. There's FDA approved viral vectors for, as I mentioned before, gene replacement therapies. Um, however, there's, you know, it, it's not the ideal mode for delivery of a uh, gene editing cargo. Although we do think it will be safe, um, because I mentioned that gene editing has this potential to be a one-and-done, a single-shot therapy. We want, in, in in a perfect world, the therapeutic delivery mechanism would be as transient as possible. So viral vectors, why they work so well for gene replacement in the brain, is because uh, the AAV, the adeno-associated viral vector platform, uh, actually uh, continues to be expressed in the brain over the long term. So uh, ideally, we could uh, reduce the amount of time of exposure to the editor because we don't need it, So, and, and we wouldn't necessarily want to have it persist. However, there's I, we, we think the approach we've taken will be very safe in this, in this respect, but this is part of the ongoing process of developing newer and better uh, delivery mechanisms over time.
0: You've long used gene editing to create mouse models of diseases. How different is gene editing as a research tool compared to being a therapeutic tool?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The editing strategies, the approach we do, we use to design, uh, you know, editing changes in the genome, whether it's for somatic deli- uh, somatic editing or for creating mouse models, fundamentally at the very base level. They're the same. Um, we do a few things uh, in mouse models that um, uh, are, are somewhat different. Um, specifically, we use a, an approach ca- called homology-directed repair. So we'll, we'll use editing to generate a uh, cut in the genome, and then we'll use a donor template that is a piece of DNA that can elicit um, the specific change we want. In some cases, and when we engineer mouse models, we can make significant changes, so we can... Uh, You know, change it, swap out entire genes, uh, put a human, uh, entire human gene into the mouse, uh, for example. And I think that technology, though, theoretically can work for therapeutic editing. Uh, Many of the cells in the body uh, don't uh, aren't constantly proliferating, which is what you need in order to do that kind of work. So when we edit in a mouse embryo, uh, we can take advantage of certain uh, DNA repair machinery uh, processes that we don't necessarily uh, aren't able to do in 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 the cell. And then of course, there's that delivery issue. Um, we can deliver a lot of things to a to an early mouse embryo using a big microinjection needle, but to deliver um, the same sort of material to billions of cells in the body is a much greater challenge. The other aspect that I think is fundamentally different between therapeutic delivery and, and making mouse models is how we consider um, off-target effects of of uh, genome editing. We can, in a mouse, for example, we would engineer a mouse and we'll end up with a a reasonably large number of animals that come out the other end that are edited and probably edited in the way we wish. Um, For those that are edited in a way we don't want, we simply don't proceed and we don't continue with that particular line. While in a human, every potential non-specific edit matters. So our tolerance for uh, off target or unexpected or undesirable outcomes from that editing for generating mouse models is is much higher so we're willing to accept that and we just simply scream for what we care about in a human we want to make sure the the edit is as precise as possible and that's not necessary in a mouse
0: at the top of this discussion i mentioned that grant from the national institutes of neurological disorders and stroke the Jackson Lab is leading this effort to validate new gene editing-based therapeutic approaches for four neurologic conditions. How did this effort come about?
1: Yeah, uh, it's an interesting story. So, the the lead principal investigator on this project, Kat Lutz, these are these four areas and neurological diseases in general. This has been an area of um, of her research for for a number of years. So she's led the development of a lot of these mouse models. She's also led the repository here at JAX that houses many of the mouse models, even if they weren't built here at JAX, they were built by other people and then we distribute them. And so she's led a lot of the efforts to both characterize those models and use them in a preclinical setting. So for example, our LEAD project or our Trailblazer project, I believe is what we call it, is uh, for spinal muscular atrophy. And so she was part of a lot of the preclinical testing for one of the approved therapeutics for uh, spinal muscular atrophy right now. So we had the models. So we we had the models, we had the expertise to characterize those models. What we needed to do is partner with some experts who understood the editing better than we did. So uh, we were incredibly fortunate to already have some ongoing collaborations with Dr. David Liu at the Broad Institute and he um, uh, happened to already be uh, working on projects on all four of the disease areas that we uh, chose to include in this grant. And uh, we were fortunate enough to find a great uh, partner in, in putting together this proposal. Um, and then finally, we we brought in an additional uh, partner uh, who is an expert in the delivery, who Kat and uh, myself have been working with for a long time. This is Dr. Stephen Gray from uh, UT Southwestern. So his expertise in, is in gene therapy. And so building those viral vectors that will allow us to deliver the gene editing cargo to the brain is his area of expertise and also navigating uh, some of the early process uh, um, uh, approval processes for moving towards a clinical trial. He's done that uh, a number of times in ultra rare disease uh, gene therapy applications. So it's really a great partnership with people we already knew. A uh, place where we already had great models, place where uh, we already had editing, um, you know proof of principle experiments underway, whether they're both in vitro or in vivo. Uh, and so we really, you know, sort of the planets aligned in in a perfect way to come up with this proposal.
0: What are the conditions you'll be looking at, and other than being neurologic, are there shared features between them?
1: yep. so so all of so the the four um, areas are, as I mentioned, spinal muscular atrophy, and this is our trailblazer project. Uh, this is the one for which we're, we have the most, we're most advanced, I think, in, in sort of moving to the clinic. So in this case, there was actually uh, a really fabulous publication by, uh, David's group led by Mondana Arbab, uh, using a, a base editor to treat, uh, spinal muscular atrophy. So that, uh, that's our preliminary data. That's, uh, the, the data that allows us to, you know, at least anticipate moving to, um, uh, application for a new drug or for an investigational new drug in the five-year window. We've also added into this um, uh, uh, Huntington's disease, so this is a repeat expansion uh, uh, neurodegenerative disease, uh, Friedrich's ataxia, which is the most common genetic cause of ataxia, and finally Rett syndrome, uh, which is a neurodevelopmental uh, disorder. So we have these four, they're, they're at different stages in terms of the maturity of uh, the proof of principle. All of them have at least in vitro proof of principle that we can modify the genome in in a desirable way.
0: Uh, What makes a particular disease best treated through a gene editing approach rather than a a different therapeutic modality? And how does that question fit into the disease selection criteria for this project? Yeah, I I think, In many cases,
1: so one of the the major features um, that uh, really supports a gene editing approach is that the disease is caused by a discrete number of specific mutations or um, would be alleviated by a relatively discrete number of types of edits. So, for example, there are uh, ultra-rare diseases or other rare diseases that are caused by uh, a single gene mutations in a single gene, but there aren't necessarily common mutations in that gene. There's many mutations in that gene, and they're all different. And that's a little bit harder for, to to attack from using a gene editing approach. At least the gene editing approach that we're using, because each mutation would need a separate uh, strategy associated with it. For these four, it's it's the same mutation in all cases, or in most cases. In rets, we've in ret syndrome, we've selected. Uh, a, a, a small number of more common mutations. But for uh, SMA, phrygic uh, Ataxia, and Huntington's disease, there's a single target that we can go after. And I think that's that's one of the key criteria. The other, these are all, um, they're rare, but they're not ultra rare. So they're common. So the, the potential impact in terms of the number of patients is higher. And so we've selected that. And then I think um, one of the most important uh, uh, considerations that we we spoke to given the goals of this program is to move the first, uh, uh, at least our Trailblazer project, to an investigational new drug application by the end of the five-year period, is the models had to be, the animal models had to exist and they needed to be well validated and in all four cases that's the case. So we have good models of disease for all of these and in fact really great targets um, uh, to test our therapeutic approaches. So uh, while we're in other work that we're doing at JAX, we're, build, we're building and improving uh, models of rare disease uh, that don't currently exist. It would be difficult to do that while also developing the editing strategy while anticipating uh, investigational new drugs. So we needed to start with models that were were well-validated.
0: This is a five-year project. What will the team be tasked with doing during that time?
1: Yeah, so, so um, as I... As, Mentioned um, really taking the proof of pr- proof of principle experiments uh, that have already been done for some of these, for all of these, and and developing a more uh, uh, extensive set of preclinical tests that would evaluate, you know, time of administration, routes of administration, different dosing schemes, et cetera. All of this would be done uh, in vivo with the, with the animal models to identify the best. Um, Arrangement that could be then put forth for the investigational new drug application, and each of these will require, um, you know, a little bit different approach. We'd also be testing and confirming, you know, the potential for off-target uh, editing, and and uh, which would be basically our our safety. And then there's tox toxicology and et cetera um, to really understand. Um, you know, the pharmacodynamics, et cetera, and also the you know potential risk of off-target effects. And we would be assessing those carefully along the way.
0: You'll be working with your Jackson Lab colleague Kat Lutz, who you mentioned earlier, to develop, validate and optimizing vivo mouse models for each disease. I know there's some existing mouse models in these conditions. Is a mouse model a model <laughs> for a disease or are there things you'd specifically need to do to create a mass model to test gene editing therapies? Mm.
1: Yeah, that, it's an interesting question. I think all, in these cases, we really do have a good model. Um, all models could be improved. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, always limitations to the, the models that we have. One of the things that um, we've been doing more of, and, and we're actually doing this for Rett syndrome in particular, is, is testing to confirm that, or, or uh, developing new ver- versions of the mouse model where it's the human sequence that's uh, been targeted to the mouse and not a, a similar version or the equivalent version in the mouse. So the reason for this is that the uh, gene editing approaches that we're, we're putting together will have very specific sequences that, um, while the mouse is very similar to the human, may not be an exact match. So the material... The car, the editing material that we generate, we want it to be equivalent to the exact material we would use for a person. So in that case, we have to change the sequence in the mouse at the very least to match the human, uh, the human sequence at least around the area that we're editing. Uh, and and for ret, we have to develop that. For Huntington's, uh, for Friedrich's ataxia, and for SMA, we have that already. We have the model is actually human sequence in the mouse, so we actually have the already the, the ideal version in terms of um, the target sequence. Um, in in theory, all of these models could be improved in terms of the exact disease, um, the replication of the disease condition, although they all are, I think, in, in our view, suitable for, for these purposes right now, but like anything that can always be uh, improved.
0: We use the term gene editing as if it's a, a monolithic approach, but there are different technologies that can be used to edit genes. How broadly are you looking at technology in this effort?
1: Yeah, so so we're, we're fairly targeted in what we've proposed to do. We're using, uh, and, and I think that's a really important point, is to note the gene editing is a, is a fairly broad space um, and probably should have brought this up at the beginning, but uh, our focus in this pro- project is to use um both uh, what we call base editing. And this is a technology developed by the LU lab uh, that allows a specific modification of either uh, uh, an A base or a C base uh, and changing it to either um, uh, a, uh, to a, G, a to G or a C to T. So these specific changes um, that don't involve, and this is important, don't involve a double-stranded break in the DNA. Uh, and, and that modification, the advantages here, one, is that it's very precise. We modify one single base. And secondly, that the double-stranded break approach has some um, potential caveats with it that uh, we think uh, the base editing approach helps to overcome. That, be, that being said, I think um, you know a standard CRISPR nuclease approach, as I mentioned before, there are, are multiple projects heading th- through the clinic right now, and they seem to be incredibly efficacious efficacious and, and safe. So uh, while we, th- we see base editing as um, providing greater precision, uh, I think all of the approaches are are incredibly promising uh, in total. So um, the other approach that we're adding to this is, is a newer technology also from the Lu Lab, called prime editing. So prime editing is is exciting because it allows you to do more than just change that single base. Or it allows you to make base changes uh, that aren't um, just uh, C to C to T. So, for example, you could change a C to G, or you could change uh, a T to a to to a to a G, for instance. So, transversions uh, are also possible with uh, with uh, uh, Prime Editor editing. Although Lulab's also developing base editors that can can do some of this as well. But we think um, having this portfolio of uh, uh, potential editing approaches that don't require a double-strand break are is a really great advantage. Um, continuing to and and one of the things that uh, I think is very clear is that the technology is advancing. It's a five-year grant. I anticipate that you know new discoveries will will emerge during those five years that might be incredibly uh, suitable for our project, and we could try to incorporate those in, particularly for not. perhaps not the SMA because that one has to get to an I or we we intend to get this to an IND in in the five-year period. So not a lot of time to pivot, but for the other projects, I think we have that opportunity to sort of reassess. The other thing is um, I wanted to mention about this is the fact that um, what we're trying to achieve can be different and is different. So for example, with nuclease approach, you can, for the example of the transtheritin amyloidosis treatment is just to remove that gene and actually uh, editing is incredibly efficient at that rather than changing the gene. Uh, and we've taken two, I think, pretty innovative approaches for free uh, ataxia and Huntington's that is probably uh, unique. So. Um, both of those diseases are due to uh, uh, an expansion of a repeat that's in the genome, and so patients who inherit that repeat, they have a larger repeat than, than people who don't uh, end up with the disease, and what causes the, the neurodegeneration is expansion of those repeats, both uh, inherited but also somatically as well. So the, a key therapeutic approach for those is to stop the expansions, and so... The way this is done that we propose to do this is to actually install specific base changes into the repeats that prevent that repeat from continuing to expand. Other approaches might remove that entire repeat that require a double-stranded break. There are potential complex rearrangements and outcomes that come with a double-stranded break and and we're able to avoid that using our uh, base installation approach.
0: There are some other efforts at NIH, PAVE-GT, and the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, which are looking across groups of diseases to leverage gene therapy to accelerate the development and reduce the cause of these potentially curative therapies. What's the opportunity here to take the work you're doing and apply it across other genetic neurologic diseases or rare genetic diseases more broadly?
1: Well, I think, yeah, uh, that's definitely the case. Uh... You know, we are, this is funded as part of a broader consortium that includes other disease areas. And I think the expectation is by, by working within a consortium and sharing, um, although we haven't had a kickoff meeting yet, I think we'll, we'll soon get to know everybody who's part of this program, uh, uh, that knowledge can be shared uh, and, and that not only our group or other groups could, could take the uh, experiences and the results that we achieve and And consider how to apply them to other disease areas, I mentioned earlier that we've been collaborating with dr Liu's lab in a, in a number of other disease contexts already, so this is something that we've we've already been considering for for ultra rare diseases. Uh, they tend to be at least the ones we 've been working on neurological in case, but there's no reason why uh, they they um, that there's no reason why uh, uh, they have to be. So, uh, for example, uh, I'm, I'm a, definitely aware of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is is looking to um, help tr- uh, uh, develop a treatment and a cure for the percentage of 10% remaining patients for which they we don't have an existing therapy. Most of those patients have um, mutations that are not addressable by a drug. And so they're, they're eagerly looking to the community for, for research proposals and funding research proposals to apply base editing and prime editing and other gene editing strategies in order to, to target those remaind- the remainder of those mutations. So that's just one space, but there's many others. Uh, I mentioned sickle cell disease, for example, was one that uh, CRISPR therapeutics is working on now. There's many other groups working on those uh, on, on sickle cell and on other uh, hemophilias, et cetera. So there, there, there's a lot of interest in a lot of space, a lot of space,
0: disease areas. Steve Murray, Associate Professor at the Jackson Laboratory. Steve, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at Danny at